Shareable is part of C-Suite Radio. say that season two is going to be absolutely incredible because in season two i have a co-host co-host say hello hello that's caroline she's now my co-host so season two of shareable is going to be a little bit different we're still talking about people and technology but we're going to go a little bit deeper a master class so grab your favorite pen and your favorite piece of paper and get ready to take some notes because this is shareable What is up, shareable listeners? This episode may sound a little bit different because today's guest is sitting in the studio with us. Uh, I have Caroline right next to me. We're sharing a mic because we're waiting on our third mic to come into the studio for these sort of occasions. Um, As with uh, our previous episodes, I want to start off with a little bit of housekeeping and say thank you so much for listening. I want to thank especially all of our Overcast listeners who have been Super duper awesome and kind by hitting the star button and keeping us in the uh, in the leaderboard of the business section. We really do appreciate that. Uh, so for those of you out there who have not subscribed, maybe this is your first episode, uh, you're in for a doozy today because this is an episode that we are recording live here in the studio. Today, our guest is Aaron Beverly. Do you know that name? You may know. Here's what you should do. Pause this episode. And I want you to go to YouTube and I want you to type in Aaron Beverly. And then come back. We'll wait. I'm just kidding. But uh, today's today's guest, Aaron Beverly, uh, was the second place winner of the International Toastmasters. Was that uh, it was 2016? 2016. 2016. Uh, I know Aaron via my fiance Erica because Aaron is involved with uh, with Naps Toastmasters. That's correct, right? You're, are you the you're the president of it, right? Correct. Yeah. Of Snapdragon Toastmasters. That's pretty awesome. So, uh, Aaron, uh, who are you, and what do you do? What's your deal? Well, as you guys already know, my name is Aaron Beverly. I am a project manager by trade at J.P. Morgan Chase. I've been there now for six years. Who I am is also a, I'm also a public speaker. Mm-hmm. And that is something that has become a passion of mine. I joined Toastmasters in 2009 when I was a senior in college, and I just took the ball and never looked back. That's awesome. So, um shareable listeners you should do yourself a favor and absolutely go check out um aaron's video of his uh of his toastmasters uh talk uh was it 57 words wasn't it the, the 57 word title the 57 word title speech yeah the 57 word title it has speech, no other is, name. It, it's it's a fantastic name for it and um it i mean it's magnificent to watch uh, undoubtedly but uh you're gonna get a lot shareable listeners from watching that video and then also just seeing the, the pacing and everything you put through um, and, and the way that you carry yourself on stage. But I have a lot of questions I want to ask you about all of that stuff because your your talk opens up a lot of different questions for me um, because you, you talk a lot about how, you know, you're not a natural speaker. Like you didn't just, when I jumped on stage for the first time, I was like, this is as comfortable as I will ever be. I just knew it immediately and it, it didn't really, uh, it wasn't something that I felt like I really had to overcome. But but you had a different kind of story. Tell us a little bit about your beginnings in the idea of even being a public speaker. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll start all the way from the beginning. and I think that's actually the perfect place to start because <laughs> that, that really is – the way you described it in your talk was, was just magnificent because it – anyway, just go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no worries. 
I started speaking the same way a lot of people start speaking when they're children. And that's, my mother made me do it. I would go into church and she would make me read a verse from the Bible in front of everyone in the church. And I didn't want to do it. However, there's one thing that you cannot tell an adult when you're a child and when I was growing up. And that word was no. You cannot say no. So I would get up there and I would be petrified. I would be shaking and I'm stumbling over my words. And once it was over, I would say, I'm glad that's done. I'm never doing that again. I hate public speaking. Fast forward, we go to middle school and it's time to graduate. And when you graduate, the valedictorian gives a speech. And I thought, okay, that's fine. I'm not the valedictorian. I wasn't even the fourth highest student, highest ranked student. And my teacher at the time had this brilliant idea to have the top four speakers of the top four students speak at graduation. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that includes me. So that is some BS. And again, I do it and I say to myself, I hate public speaking. Then I get to high school. I'm nowhere close to valedictorian. I'm nowhere close to fourth. And I think I'm safe. But my principal at the time says, for the first time in the history of the school, we're going to teach every senior public speaking. So we had to do a year of public speaking classes. And after that's done, I say, okay, I'm never doing that again. I hate public speaking. And then freshman year in college, guess what class I had to take? History. <laughs> nice try, public but speaking. public speaking. Yeah. <laughs> and it was at that point where I start thinking to myself, why do I still hate this so much? I have all this experience. Why do I hate it? The thing was, I was still fearful of public speaking. But the most important thing was I didn't know why. And I think that is something that a lot of people face when it comes to public speaking. They have a fear, they have an anxiety, but they don't know what it is. People give the generic term, oh, I fear public speaking. But when you say that, you create this huge insurmountable wall that you can't get by, you have to specify it. And what it does, it makes that wall into just a smaller hurdle that you can either jump over or just walk around. But I had to specify what my fear was. And I found out what that fear was in my sophomore year in college. There was a program that I had graduated from that the school had provided. And students had, every graduate that was a part of it had to take a role. My role was to give the keynote speaker a gift after he finished speaking. I had to say three lines. That was it. The day comes, I get up there, and I say absolutely nothing because I blanked <laughs> out. And all the eyes are looking at me, and time just slowed down. Even the keynote speaker, it seemed like he was looking at, at me as if to say, just say something, kid. It's not that hard. So I did, finally. I said, here, 
shoved the gift in his chest and walked back to my seat. And that was the moment that I realized what my fear was. It wasn't that I feared public speaking. It was that I feared embarrassment. And once I was able to specify that fear, I told myself, I don't want to be embarrassed ever again. And that is actually what prompted me to join Toastmasters. Pretty long-winded, so I no, 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 no. I'm, I'm. The reason I'm being silent is I'm just like taking that in. That's like, that's the experience that brought you there, and that's amazing. Um, so you, aside from the fact that you had these public experiences when you were public speaking experiences when you were young, kind of forced into them and everything. By nature, you're a fairly quiet and introverted person. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. So this was like this wasn't just public speaking, but in general, like you're not like a boisterous out there, you know sort of thing. So, so you, you decided that you wanted to do this. What happened next? Kind of like where, where did, so you joined Toastmasters. What was the objective of doing that? Was it just so you could have those situations where you have to deliver three lines and you wouldn't have to, you know, blank, uh, or, or, uh, you wouldn't like just go blank and, and not have anything to say, or was it that you wanted to be, you actually wanted to be a public speaker because you wanted to see it as like overcoming something? Like, where did you go from there? Well, I didn't start off wanting to be a public speaker. The seed was planted when I embarrassed myself and I said, I don't want to be embarrassed again. But then the straw that broke the camel's back, and it was actually two straws, two individuals that inspired me. One was the person who introduced me to Toastmasters. His name is Dilababe Sekera. And that name may not sound too familiar to a lot of people, but in the Toastmasters world, he is very well known. He was the former president of the entire Toastmasters organization, and Toastmasters is an organization that spans over 100 countries. There are hundreds and maybe even thousands of chapters around the world, and he was the president of that in the year 2005, as well as a senior officer years before that. So, and he was a professor at my school, and I saw his ability to speak, and I just said to myself, I have to have that ability. Then when I really was about to join Toastmasters, it was in 2008. And in 2008, Barack Obama was campaigning, and he was giving speeches, and I started watching his speeches, and I'm just mesmerized by how he's able to craft words in a way that engages people and gives people hope and inspiration. And again, I said to myself, I have to have that ability. So those two gentlemen are two of the reasons why I decided that I need to join Toastmasters on top of the not wanting to be embarrassed. So now that you have, you've, you've gone down this path, you, you learned how to be a better public speaker, um, outside of the time when you're on stage, what else have you seen that this has brought to your life, being able to be a more eloquent communicator, to understand pacing and timing and things like that? What has that done for you, you know, in relationships, in your career, and just in your life in general? Well, relationships, I'm still working on that one. But in terms of professional, it's really helped me get more confidence in the professional sense. In project management, you speak with a lot of people, a lot of senior people. Sometimes these people know a lot more than you do. Sometimes they don't know as much as you do, and they act like they do. 
And you have to find a way to communicate to these various people. So having the experience in Toastmasters gave me the confidence to know that, okay, I'm capable of crafting a message, albeit it's a little bit shorter than what I would do in a Toastmasters world, but still it's the same principles apply. You're trying to know who you're talking to, and you're crafting a message that's tailored to your specific audience. And that confidence has really helped me enhance my career. Then in terms of friendships and personal life, just being able to communicate interpersonally a little bit better. I would say that's still one of the things that I'm trying to get better at with the whole networking in life outside of work. Still, still trying to figure that one out, but Toastmasters has given me that foundation and public speaking has given me that foundation and that confidence to know that, okay, it's not that hard. I can do it. Yeah, that's excellent. So um, in our season two episodes, we like to really kind of drill down and identify who an episode is really ideally suited for. We like to talk about, you know, letting people know what they're going to learn in the episodes, et cetera. So I just want to kind of right now at this point, kind of level set for the audience. I think this episode is going to be really great for anybody who has feared public speaking, anybody who may have uh, might be a little bit more on the introverted side, and um, people are, and, and I think also outside of that, just people who are looking to learn some of the techniques that professional speakers and people that work and hone their craft like you do uh, use and, and go through to take themselves to the next level. So I think that's really where I want to make this episode about. Yeah. Um, and I definitely want to talk to you more about your preparation and your process. So before we get into the preparation and process and the things that you're doing that you have found a lot of success with and, and that have helped you move things along. Uh, let's start at the uh, at, at, at the point of what some people get wrong jumping into public speaking. So whether you're an introvert that is thinking that you want to take this on, which I, I think comes with probably its own set of challenges, or somebody that's already in public speaking and you know just jumps right into it, um, what are some of the mistakes people make early on in public speaking that, that may hinder their ability to become really excellent at it? Well, there are a lot of things that people do that can hinder their ability to effectively communicate. But I would say the biggest mistake that a lot of people make, and I alluded to it a little bit before, they don't know who they're speaking to. Before I put pen to paper or finger to keyboard, before I even come up with a concept of what I want to talk about, I try to understand three letters, K-Y-A. Know your, know your audience. And that is really sometimes the make or break of your presentation before it even is drafted. If you were, if you decide to start crafting a message to a senior level person, but you're speaking in a way that's more foot soldier, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. your presentation is going to be horrible to them. You have to know who you're talking to, so that way you can craft that message and tailor it to that audience. So that's the biggest mistake. They don't know who they're talking to. You have to know your audience. Got it. it it's and, and that kind of falls in line with the idea of starting with your goals, and part of you know accomplishing your goals is knowing 
knowing the variables and that the variable in public speaking is knowing your audience because you're never going to be able to accomplish your goal with that audience, whether it's marketing to them, selling to them, educating them, mm. if you can't understand where they're coming mm -hmm. from. What are some of the steps that you take to better know that audience? I mean, you speak to a large number of different types of audiences. How do you go about getting yourself in that mindset and that headset to know what they're, what you need to say to that level audience? Well, I'll give you an example. And the short answer is ask. But in December, I'll be going to Dubai. It's the first time I'm speaking internationally. And this is an audience that I haven't really engaged with specifically. I've spoken to, of course, people that have been from Dubai and my general audiences at the Toastmasters contests. But a room full of people in Dubai, I've never spoken in front of that type of audience before. However, I know the people to ask. I'm asking them, what type of things do I need to avoid when I'm speaking on stage? As an American speaker, how should I not present myself in front of this Middle Eastern audience? Or are there things that are totally myth and I can do that are, I, people say that you can't do? In addition to that, there are people that I know that speak to that type of audience all the time. And even better, they speak humorously to those people all the time. So that's really something that, a resource that I can utilize. So I'll be reaching out to them and saying, hey, I will be speaking soon. What are some things that I should talk about? What are some key points that the audience likes to hear? Do they like to hear more about communication from a leadership aspect? Do they like to hear it just from a contest perspective? You try to utilize your network to get the answers that you need, even in work. I need to ask my senior managers, what are the things that you're looking for? Or even my direct manager, what are the things that you have more experience than I do? What are the things that you know that these people like to hear? What do they like to see? How can I incorporate that into my presentation? So you just have to ask, and that's how you can learn more about your audience. Excellent. You brought up uh, humor, and and um, from watching your talk, I, I thought you were an expert storyteller. Um, how important is that for all speakers, to, to have humor or to have storytelling ability? I mean, I, I think humor, at least in my my perspective on it is that humor is one of those things that it can either have it or you don't have it. Mm. Um, you can definitely work on it. Uh, it's it's generally not a bad thing to have. I mean, depends on who your audience is and what the talk is. But you know, but storytelling seems to be one of those things that seems to be something that's important for all speakers. Uh, would you agree with that? What's your perspective on storytelling? And and if you could also, can you tell us a little bit about how you put together stories for your talks? Sure. First, to the humorous point that you brought up, it's a funny story because when I first, well, about my third year in Toastmasters, I was trying to, and to expand my speaking repertoire, and I tried to start speaking more humorously in my talks. And after one of my talks, one of my friends came up to me, and I'm still friends with her today, love her to death, but she came up to me and said, Aaron, you know what? Humor just not your thing. And I really took that to heart and I just started working on it constantly. And it's funny because that's something that comedians do. They 
start with something that may be moderately funny, not funny at all, and then they just work on it and they craft it. They speak in front of hundreds and thousands, probably even for some of them, of audiences, and they refine that material to the point where it just becomes, oh my goodness, this is so hilarious. This guy seems so natural. But they don't see that time that was spent in crafting probably those two lines. So that that's the thing that I would say about humor. It takes time to develop, but and some people do have it naturally. I wish I could be funny as some of the people that I know in my life, but it takes a little bit more work for me. But storytelling, storytelling is something that is critical. If you can tell a good story, the world is your oyster. If you can tell a good story, you can be a great salesperson. If you can tell a great story, you can obviously be a president. <laughs> if you tell a great story, there are many different avenues that are open to you from being a good storyteller. And the thing about storytelling and what I try to do with my stories when I'm creating them, I answer the question, is this story relatable? That's the key to a story. It has to be relatable to your audience. So I try to take aspects of my life that may be embarrassing, but I always try to have a lesson that can be universal. For instance, in the speech where, in my 57-word title speech, I told a few stories there. Well, two and a half, I, I'd say. One story was about this evil bus driver, the meanest lady you could ever meet, until one day, this gentleman named Austin gets on the bus, and he just says, how are you today, beautiful? And she just had the biggest smile after he said that. At the time, knowing who she was, I was totally taken aback. Uh, how can she smile? Is this even possible? But that's one story that I tell. And then the highlight of the 57-word title speech is the story about a young girl named Michelle. Michelle, like a lot of people, like myself, introverted, not really comfortable with public speaking. And you could tell. She never raised her hand for anything, even though she was coming regularly to the Toastmasters meetings that I was a part of at the time. And one day, she finally raised her hand. And it was for a session, an impromptu speaking session we call Table Topics. And the prompt was, what was the greatest moment of your life? And she just froze. And then she started to cry. Now me, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this is horrible. But then she finally spoke and she mentioned the most amazing moment of her life when my mom said she believed in me. Now those stories are simple, but they're relatable. You can relate to those emotions. A lot of people, when they hear that speech, they say, 
oh yeah, I know a person, a mean person in my life. And they also say that I can totally relate to that young woman because it made, it reminded me of my mother. It reminded me of my loved one who told me something touching. So, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, but relatability is the key to storytelling. So I'm definitely struck by your, um, again, your kind of your, your pacing, your tone, and most, I would say most striking about watching your talk was the complete lack of fluff. That, like mm. there was no fat on that talk whatsoever. The, the, the brevity of your communication, it was like you trimmed everything down to everything that was needed and nothing further, and you, you left in nothing that was unnecessary at all. Mm. So it, it, was, it was a really concise talk, which I think obviously is the point of, of performing at that level. Yeah. Um, so even, even as we talk right now, I've noticed you're very deliberate about your pacing. You're very deliberate about your, um, pronunciation of words. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how much of what you do or how much from the beginning of your speaking career to now, how much of the skill that you bring to this is natural versus been worked on. So for instance, you, I think you have a great voice. I don't know if that's something that when, you know, in 2009, you're like, hi everybody, my name's Aaron. <laughs> and you just work to, to get it there. Or if that's just something you brought in, you're like, okay, I don't really have to work on that. Um, you know, versus the way you moved around the stage, you know, it looked very deliberate when you chose to, to move backwards on the set on the stage so that you could draw people back with you. Um, so of, of all the different pieces that your movements, your voice and, and uh, ability to project your voice, your enunciation of words, your pacing, your ability to put together stories, how much of those things were natural to you versus what were the things that you've had to really work on? So all of it was totally unnatural. So this is a fully created thing that you have here is that you, yes. you basically started from functionally ground zero. Yeah, you had like, I, I have a voice. I don't really know how to use it. And and I have some things that have happened to me, but they're not formulated into stories. Um, and you basically just from scratch built up your your abilities to this level. Yep, absolutely. When I first started, well, actually, when I was talking to you about how comedians take a couple lines and they go to countless audiences and they refine those two lines until it just becomes hysterical. That's similar to the process that I took. That speech that I gave in the 2016 contest was originally written in 2014. Oh, wow. Okay. So you, you workshopped that for a long time. There were different parts of it. So when if you were to read that speech in the 2014 version, you wouldn't recognize it. You would probably recognize the one story with Michelle, but other than that, you would say, wow, what is, what is this speech? And one of the approaches that I take to speaking or storytelling is that I do a lot of piecemeal or when I'm crafting a speech, I'll take different 
stories. I have a story file now that I write out different ideas, different stories, and it's oh yeah, it's. I had that when I was dating, but I I don't have it now. No, seriously, when when I was single, I used to have a whole. I had an Evernote. I had jokes. I had one-liners. I had uh, funny anecdotes. I had all sorts of stuff. And then like you know, once once Eric and I got together, I just I just. Don't I don't even know if I still have it, but but and, but they <laughs> were they were stories specifically knowing your audience. They were specifically stories for dating. I feel like I need to to do that with the story bank for for talks. Yeah, that has been so valuable to me. That I think of a general concept like the story with Michelle. Mm-hmm. I had this great story and I wanted to use it in a speech. So I had to start thinking, okay, what's, what is the relatable point here? And the relatable point was that a few words can lead to this effect. So I thought to myself, okay, do I have other stories like this? And that's when I started looking through my story files. Oh, yeah, well, that's another one where a few words totally changed an outcome. That's another story where a few words made somebody react a certain way. And that's really what I did when I crafted my speech. And I also do that for my stories. I just take general ideas and I put them to the side until I can start developing them a little bit more. And like I said, it takes years in that case with that speech. But yeah, that's what I do for stories. I just come up with a general idea, I put it in a story file, and then I just start to work it and craft it and just try to find ways to use it. So I want to start from the beginning and use the the rest of our time on this episode to really kind of go step by step for yeah. people from we're, we're going to assume that they at least have the idea that they want to do a talk, right? So maybe they've been on stage before, maybe they haven't. But I want to walk them kind of through what your process looks like from ideation of the idea through to, you know, delivering the talk itself. What are kind of the different stages that you go through? Um, and, and I really want to focus on the, the, the preparation side of it in terms of, um, you know, the, the various elements from, you know, voice and movement, especially, uh, and, and the script itself. Uh, and, and somewhere in there, if you could just talk about slides or no slides, because I know that's a question that often comes <laughs> up. Um, you know, I noticed in your talk, you didn't use any slides, and I found it extremely engaging. Um, but, you know, do you ever use slides would be just another point down the road. But let, let's go step by step through it. What's your process kind of start out like? Sure. Well, for me, having a story file, that is something that, again, is a really valuable because it gives you a lot of ideas of what you can talk about. But like I said before, the first step that you have to do, you have to know your audience. Who will you be speaking to? For instance, if I'm in the Toastmaster contest, I'm going to be talking to people at different levels. So Toastmaster contests are structured that you start off in the club level, which is your local club. Then you go to the area, which is the several clubs in your general zip code. The division in this instance is Philadelphia. And then the district is South Jersey and Eastern Pennsylvania. Are there regionals like in Glee Club? There used to be regionals, but after district level, you go immediately to the international stage within the semifinals and then the finals. Awesome. 
But I know the audience that I'm going to be speaking to at the club level. So that's where I start. And knowing my audience, okay, now what's next? Well, the second step in the process is that you have to answer the question, what do I want my audience to do, think, or know by the time I'm finished speaking? And the key to that is that you have to answer it in 10 words or less. And then I play a little game. I try to whittle it down to five words, then three words, then one word. And what it does, it helps you focus your message. So as you're crafting your presentation or your message, and you're trying to implement an idea or a story, does it fit into that central theme? If the answer is yes, then you absolutely add it. If the answer is no or probably, then you should probably lay it to the side because there are other things that you can put into that presentation that's going to enhance your message. And if you try to put many other things in there, it's just going to dilute it. And all of a sudden, you'll have a message that's not clear. Got it. it it's almost like there's. It's almost like you're building a strategy for your talk. Like the goal oh, yeah. is that what I want people to change. Knowing my audience is is you know part of the strategy. And then what's the, the strategy is like what overall are we trying to communicate? Everything has to fit in towards that goal. Yeah. All yeah. right. Cool. So now you have the idea of what you want to change. You have an idea of some of the stories, whether they fit, where they don't fit. What's your next step? So the next step after that. And this is more of a 2A mm -hmm. than an actual third step. But we talked about what, did I, what do I want the audience to do, think, or know. Mm -hmm. This is actually something that I switched around from another champion public speaker by the name of Darren LaCroix. His statement is, what do I want the audience to do, think, or feel? But my third step, or 2A, is mapping out the emotions. So it's great that you want the audience to feel, but in his version, I don't want you to just feel at the end. I want you to feel throughout. So 2A is mapping out the emotions that you want to take. Is this kind of like building a mixtape, like where you kind of think like at the beginning, I'm gonna hit them real hard and then I'm gonna drop it off for a little bit? Oh, is it absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned that because the my style of presentation I like to say it's jab, 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 hook. And the, the jab, jab, jab is the humor. So hit him with a little humor. Hit him with a little humor. Then bam, hit him with some serious. Awesome. I know there's a book by Gary Vaynerchuk called Jab, 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 Right Hook. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure if you were quoting him or not. but um, No, no. No, but I, I like that idea. It's kind of you're setting them up, setting them up, setting them up, drop the hammer. Exactly. And as, you, as you're using humor, it's a great way to build connection with the audience. If you make them laugh, then you're in. Mm -hmm. And it's going to keep their attention. Exactly. But there are other ways to do it as well. I like to use a concept that I call emotional variety. So we hear about vocal variety, but emotional variety is very important as well. Mm -hmm. Because if I just have you with the same level of emotion throughout my presentation, I don't feel I'm doing a good job, especially if you're talking for something that's more inspirational. In the professional world, you probably don't need to evoke as much emotion unless you're really trying to sell something. Mm -hmm. But 
emotions and a variety of emotions are very important for a strong presentation. So it's kind of a 2A, like I said before, instead of an actual third step. Mm -hmm. But once I have those things established, I go to the definite third step. And that third step is writing out the first draft. Got so it. now I'm finally getting to the writing process. Got it. Let me ask you one more thing about the emotion before we move on past that. Sure. You had mentioned emotional, um, what did you call it? Emotional uh, uh, variety. Emotional variety. Okay, cool. So uh, is that more of a subtle change or are you looking for sharp contrast when you do that? Or do you kind of mix it up and do a little bit of both? Like are you trying to go for humor, humor, humor? extremely intense emotion of like sadness or profundity uh, mm -hmm. or like is it the sort of thing where you go from a little bit of humor to a little bit more serious to a little bit more serious to very serious so is it more gradual or do you generally like to kind of like show sharp contrast in that I generally do it gradually mm -hmm. and the reason I do that is because I don't want to all of a sudden shock my audience because there's a very good chance that you can lose them once you hit them with that shock factor mm-hmm so in my speeches, I generally take them through their emotions gradually. And there are m multiple ways to do that. It's not just in the types of stories you tell, but it's in the tone of your voice. For instance, in that speech in Toastmaster, the Toastmasters contest, when I started talking about Michelle and I started speaking a lot slower, the pauses became longer and my voice became softer. So there are a variety of emotions that they could be feeling at that time as they're hearing that story and they're hearing my voice doing these modulations. And then I hit them with the punch, well, not the punch line because that's more used for humor, but I hit them with that key line when my mom said she believed in me. Mm -hmm. And that's when I want them to feel the most. Mm -hmm. I want them to feel touched. I want them to feel inspired. I, I just want them to feel all sorts of emotions at that point. Yeah. But it's a gradual process. And you had to set that up or it wouldn't have landed as hard. All those silences exactly. allow it draws them in, draws them in, draws them in. So when you when you actually give them that line, they're kind of at like the, the peak of attention and being drawn in. Exactly. It makes perfect sense. Okay, so... So sorry, I didn't want to have derail the, the flow of it, but uh, no so worries. then you hit your right, then you write your first draft of it. Yep. Okay. Take us take us what happens from there. When I write my first draft, it's literally just putting all the ideas on paper. Stream of consciousness. Exactly. And for some people, they don't like to write things out. I prefer to type. Some people like to physically write in a book. Some people don't like to write at all. And that's perfectly fine if that's your style. Me personally, I have to have a script to work from. And if you don't really like to type or write, there are a lot of different apps available nowadays where you can speak and it'll write out what you want. Mm -hmm. And the technology is getting more advanced with that and, so and it can transcribe it for you. And another just easy one that we use sometimes is you can go to fiverr.com and you can get 10 minutes of transcription for like five bucks. Yeah. So another easy way to do it. Okay, cool. So you, so you do the draft. What happens yep. next after that? So yeah, the key with the draft is that you have to know that it's not going to be a masterpiece first draft. Like I said before, it, it takes time. 
So after I write the draft and I get it to some semblance of something that's somewhat presentable, I take the next step. So step number four, and it's really, really, really critical for me and my process. I read out the script and audio record myself as I'm doing it. Now, you mentioned the voice before. If the voice was natural, no, it was not. I hated my voice so much. When I first started speaking, I sang, and I'm, I sang bass. So I'm thinking to myself, oh man, I, I probably sound like Barry White <laughs> or some other deep voice person. And then I listened to myself. The first thing I said was, ill. <laughs> That's me? Oh, I sound horrible. <laughs> and then it was funny because people would come up to me and say, oh man, you have such a great voice. And I would say, really? You really do have a great voice. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I've learned to live with it now, and I've learned to accept it. But there were actually little things that I did to improve the quality of my voice, where before I would speak from my chest, I speak from my diaphragm now. It's the same technique singers use, where if you were to breathe and you feel your chest moving out, you're breathing from your chest. Now, if you breathe and you feel your stomach moving out, that's breathing from your diaphragm. And... What it does, I'm not a professional in this or subject matter expert on this, but I believe it takes a lot of the pressure off the lungs. So it, the diaphragm assists the lungs and you get more air. The more air you get, the better quality sound comes back out. So that's what I did for my voice. But audio recording myself is really key because step number five, and a lot of people miss this step, you have to listen to the recording. Oh, oh! so if you hate your voice, that's going to be especially difficult. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I do presentations, and I go over these this process and these steps. When I get to this part, for number four and five, I have them record themselves, and then I have them listen to themselves. And you should see their faces when I tell them to do this. They're like, oh, no. Please, no. And then as they're listening to themselves, they're just laughing like, oh, my goodness, this sounds horrible. But I tell them, hey, this is your voice. This is your recording. This is how you sound. Deal with it. It's really interesting because uh, I rarely listen to our podcasts because I can't stand listening to myself talk <laughs> on the podcast. Like, I love our guests. And I love Caroline's adorable voice on it, but like I hear myself and I'm like, just shut your mouth, you idiot. I have idiot. to listen to all of us. Yeah, I know. You have to listen to them all the time, but like I, I can't stand it. But, you just get over but, it. but I love my voice. Like when I have the headphones on, I just, hello, this is the sweet, soulful sounds of Jeff Gibbard's voice. I love it. It makes me so happy. But yeah, I, uh, I generally don't listen to it. But that, that's interesting that that would be one of the more difficult um, steps in the process, I'd imagine, for because, you know, all of us are a little self conscious about something, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you listen to it aloud. So you, so you got your first draft. You read it aloud. Record yourself. You listen to it aloud. Okay, now you're feeling terrible about yourself, obviously. <laughs> what do you do next? Well, after that, it's repeat. So what are you repeating? You're repeating the writing process. So you're going back and you're editing what you've heard. So maybe you heard something and you said, okay, I don't really like that line. I'm going to take that out and I'm going to replace it with this. Or I'm going to switch these words around. When you're listening to yourself, 
you're listening out for things that you can change. So you're basically being your own evaluator. You're being your own critic. And just a point of clarification, you're reading this script as if you were delivering it, not just like Correct. reading it like I am reading my script and it Correct. Yeah. You still you want to incorporate as many of the as much of the vocal variety, as much of the deliberate pauses as you would try to give as if you were presenting it. When you read it and you're recording it, are you standing and moving and thinking about your blocking at that moment or are you just simply no, reading? That it? comes later down the line. Okay, cool. Now, when after I've listened to it and I go through the editing process, I do I get another script, then I record it again, and then I listen to it again. And that's a process that I keep repeating over and over and over and over again until I get to step seven. When I finally have a version that seems good to put in front of an audience, I finally take it to a live studio audience. Do you do, um, do you always go directly to an actual audience or do you ever do it in front of like a, a peer group or something like bring it to you like your other Toastmasters peers and, and have them look at it or do you just jump into the fire? Well, my Toastmaster clubs, I consider them my peers. So I will take a speech to them, mm -hmm. something that I'm working on or a story that I'm trying to work on. And I talked about the table topic session, the impromptu session that Toastmasters has. There are times where I'll get a prompt and I would think, oh, wait, I have a story that fits that. Let me try to utilize that. And I work on it that way. But when I'm going to my Toastmasters, clubs or going to an audience, that's when I'm first thinking about blocking out the stage. I'm starting to get a general idea, okay, where do I want to stand? Where do I want to move? Now, the key here is that as I am speaking in front of a live audience, I'm video recording. Yep. I was going to ask if you did that because if you're recording your voice, you should probably also be recording your movements Absolutely. and watching that. I notice I pace a lot. Um, in fact, when when I was um, with some of my speaking peers, uh, they had somebody hold my feet down so that I couldn't pace around the stage, <laughs> which I found incredibly uncomfortable because um, normally that's like that's my energy. I just move all around. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I'd imagine videotaping yourself and seeing how you move is probably the same sort of thing as – Recording Absolutely. your voice. And it really comes into step number eight, which is watch the recording. Yep. And similar to listening to the audio recording, now you're watching for things that you can change. So, oh man, I didn't like how I moved there. It seemed totally unnatural. Or I am doing something that's distracting. Like you said, pacing, pacing around, around. fidgeting with your hands. For a lot of people, or... that can be very distracting. Your hands, overusing your hands, that can be very distracting. So you're looking out for these things. And you're looking at it from your own perspective. Now, once I've thought about all of that and I've thought about how I want to change where I stand and where I move, I'm continuing that process as well, going into other audiences. Because like I said, you want to try to put it in front of as many audiences as possible to Keep refine it. Keep workshopping it. Now, step number nine is receive, get and receive feedback, but apply it with caution. Now, what I mean by this 
is that in the Toastmasters world, you have a lot of people that will give you their opinions. We have a whole session in the general Toastmasters meetings geared just for that, evaluations. However, a lot of people, when they hear a speech and they're thinking about how I would critique this speech, they're thinking of it from a point of view of, if I were speaking, this is how I would do it. And that doesn't always fit what you would do. Mm -hmm. And this is really key because you have to really know yourself. And it takes time to really know who you want to be as a speaker, as a presenter, have a style. And sometimes people will tell you something that's totally off of your style. Now, when I receive feedback, I always sleep on it for a day. Because once I get off the stage and I think, oh, man, I did such a great job, and somebody tells me, like, well, you can do this to improve, I'm like, oh, to hell with you. Yeah. But once I sleep on it and I start thinking about it, I'll say, okay, maybe not in the way that you said it, but I may apply a little bit of what you said and change my speech accordingly. So I always say that I am, when it comes to my presentations, I am the judge, I am the jury, and if need be, I am the executioner. Everybody else, they're just lawyers trying to present their case. Mm -hmm. So that's for general people. But I definitely suggest that you have a closer circle, people that you trust. I call this my circle of counsel. And these are the people that have the authority to also change your speech because these people should know who you are. They should know your style. And in my circle of counsel for the speeches that I do in my contest, I have three people. I have my mother, my sister, because they know me at a personal level. And then I also have my mentor, the person who introduced me to Toastmasters, Dilipave Sekera. He was a former contestant. He placed second in 1992. He was the president of Toastmasters International. He's seen dozens of contests. So this is a person whose experience I trust. Mm -hmm. So as you're building out your presentations, find people that you can trust, whose input that you would value. So that when they say you need to change this, it holds a little bit more weight than somebody else that's just in the general audience. So make sure you Get feedback, but again, apply it with caution. Mm -hmm. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pass along one more piece of advice that I got from uh, some of my speaking peers. Um, Michael Port recently, I heard him uh, talking about the idea of feedback and said, uh, one of the things that can be very helpful as a speaker is if you just kind of leave it open, it can be very, um, it, it may not be helpful for you. Mm. It may not serve what you're trying to do. Oh, yeah. But if, for instance, you're working on a particular story, you may be able to say that people are watching, hey, listen, I'm I'm working on this particular story at this point. I want you to notice how I transition into it and how I transition out of it. And I want you to specifically look for my, my timing on that story. That's what I want you to watch for. So asking for very specific feedback on things that you are workshopping can be very helpful there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, I do that as well. Yeah, so shout out to Michael Port for that one. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that this is a, a, a dynamite top to bottom, step by step. Are there any other things you want to add to that? Because it seems like a pretty complete closed loop process. Yep, it's just step 10, and this is the final step. And that is set a cutoff date. Okay. Now, 
when we are creating presentations, it's the day of and we're still making edits. No, that should not happen. And unfortunately, I've been guilty of making last minute changes and a lot of times it didn't work out too well. Yeah, I haven't had too many where that isn't the case. Yeah. The, but but interestingly enough, quick anecdote, the probably the best presentation I've ever given from a comfort standpoint, from knowing my material, from feeling like really in it, it was the only one I've ever written a script for, mm. and it was the one I probably rehearsed and practiced the most. Mm. It was the presentation I gave prior to proposing to Erica. Was, it was that one because I wanted to get it right. So I spent <laughs> so much time working on it and working on it, and I actually, it was one of the only ones I went into, and I wasn't making changes right before it. I had, yeah. It was set for like probably about two weeks at that point. Oh, wow. And I was like, good. I was like, nice. this is my, I just was rehearsing it. Yeah, yeah. and I say at least three days before. At least three That's days. when you set your cutoff, absolutely no more changes. I don't care if it's from my circle of counsel. I don't care if it's myself. I'm not making any changes. This is set in stone because what I'll have, I'll have an audio recording that's probably near perfect to what how I wanna present it. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna to listen to that over and over and over again so that I can internalize the message. And in addition to that, as I'm listening, I'm gonna be practicing my body movement to make sure that it's natural, that it's free flowing. So that happens at least three days before, and then it's showtime. Solid. Ah, Aaron, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming by and giving us the step-by-step -step how Thanks you for do inviting things. Me. Um, I think this was phenomenal, and, and as, as master classes go, this was undoubtedly a master class. Um, before I let you go, though, uh, tell people who are listening where they can go learn more about you, where they can uh, inquire about you know, having you come to speak to their organization, uh, getting coaching from you, or whatever else uh, that you want to share with them. Absolutely. So you can reach out to me through my website, SpeakNBU. And speakNBU.com. And you can email me at Aaron at speakNBU.com. And if you just want to hear more from me, you can just check out my YouTube channel, Aaron Beverly. I should be the one, well, actually, there are a lot of Aaron Beverly's I've learned, but <laughs> you should be able to recognize me. I'm the tall, bald black guy. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to put you in the show notes anyway, so there's no way that uh, that people can't No mistake find in it. Yeah, no, no way at all. Well, I think this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you again for coming in. Uh, I know it's it's dark out, and we've had to deal with some background noise, surprisingly, but uh, you handle it like a champ, and, and you, I think you crushed this episode. Um, if I had to give one word to describe it, I probably would say that it's shareable. There are a couple thank yous and shout outs in order. First, thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value, and a quick thank you to me for producing the show. I'd like to send a shout-out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and A. Himitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. You can follow Jeff on Twitter, at jgibbard, and you can follow me, at Caroline Tassone. You can follow the show, at shareable underscore pod, and just shareable podcast on everything else. That's Facebook, the gram, everything. You can email us at shareablepodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to our email list at shareablepodcast.com slash subscribe. Do all the things. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating. Review us on iTunes. Tell a friend. Tell your mom. I don't know. She might like it. My mom does. Hey, mom. <laughs>